Philippians chapter 4, verse 1 to 9. Therefore, my dear brothers, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, that is how you should stand, that is how you should stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. I plead with Eudia and I plead with Syntec to agree with each other in the Lord. Yes, I ask you, loyal yoke fellow, help these women who have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your heart and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learnt and received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice. And the God of peace will be with you. I'm guessing you've had the experience that uh, you get a letter or more likely these days an email from someone and you see who it's from and you're a little surprised. Uh, you're wondering what that person has written to you for. And, and you start reading through the email and you're finding out what's happening in their life and the things that have been going on for them. And then all of a sudden you get to that bit where you go, oh, so that's why they've written to me. Well, that's the bit that we're up to in Philippians this morning. Um, all of the other things that Paul says have been great and important, and he clearly has a few reasons for writing this letter. I mean, first of all, the Philippians are worried about him. They know that he's in jail and they're not sure how he's going. So he wanted to reassure them that everything's okay. He also wanted to thank them for the great support that they've given him, and we'll see that in the passage next week. But today we get to the bit which I think is Paul's main purpose in writing this whole letter. We've been able to glean as we've looked through the letter to the Philippians that there's obviously a small problem with disunity in the church. Uh, Paul's made a couple of impassioned pleas for them to be unified. Uh, If you've got your Bible there, have a look. Chapter 1, verse 27 is the first of Paul's pleas. He says this, Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence... I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one person for the faith of the gospel. And then at the beginning of chapter 2, he said this, If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Now, from those kinds of things, we can kind of get an inkling that there's something probably not right in the church in Philippi. He doesn't make those kinds of pleas to other churches in other letters that he writes, but he does for the Philippians. And then on top of that, the bulk of the letter has really been examples of people who are doing what he'd really like to see the Philippians do. He gives examples of people who are focused on the gospel, united, committed to the main thing, working towards that end. I mean, first of all, there's his own example in chapter 1 where Paul says, I'm in prison now, but it doesn't matter. 
The gospel's still being advanced. I get to meet people here that I never would have met before. An example of a man committed to the gospel. Uh, The first half of chapter 2, he gives the example of Jesus, who was in very nature God, but didn't consider equality with God something to hang on to. He was willing to empty himself and become nothing for our sake. And then the examples of Timothy and Epaphroditus at the end of chapter 2. Two men who have a heart for the gospel. Two men are willing to give up, even with Epaphroditus, even willing to put his own life on the line for the sake of the gospel. He's pleaded with the Philippians to be unified and he's shown them what unity is going to look like in these examples. So then we come to these closing words at the beginning of chapter 4. We come to the bit where Paul, well, he starts to name names. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, that is how you should stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. Verse 2. I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche to agree with each other in the Lord. And yes, I ask you, loyal yoke fellow, help these women who've contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of the fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Now, it may not sound like much, it kind of just sounds like one verse where these two names are mentioned. But I think this is the very heart of the letter. This is why Paul wrote. There's a division that exists between these two women, between Euodia and Syntyche. And it isn't just that it's affecting their relationship. It's affecting everybody else in the church as well. It's obviously having an impact on the whole church. And Paul pleads with them to be united. And why does he plead with them to be united? Is it just because friends shouldn't fight? Is it just because it would be all nicer if we could all just get along? Paul pleads with them because of the union that they share in Jesus. Paul says to them, look at what it is that you have in common. Look at the union that you share in Jesus and then tell me if this disagreement that you're having is bigger than that, more important than the union that you have through Jesus. These are women who Paul says have contended at his side for the sake of the gospel. They have been his partners in taking that gospel message to the world. Partners in seeing it, in believing it themselves and partners in preaching it. And they've let some small issue divide them. When what unites them is clearly far bigger. There are very few things more sad than seeing a church that's crippled by division. Uh, I know of a church, and I know I've mentioned this before, but you only needed to be there one Sunday to realise how serious the division was in this church. You might not have noticed that as the meeting was happening, everyone was just sitting in church, but as soon as church finished, you could pick it a mile away. One group of people went and stood on the footpath outside the church, and the other group of people went into the hall and had morning tea. And the group out on the footpath were talking about the group in the hall and the group in the hall were talking about the group on the, out on the footpath. And there was a whole lot of, well, they, meaning that amorphous other group, they do this or they do that. And the really sad thing about the division is in this church is that no one could quite remember how it started. No one could quite remember what the issue was that had seen the church divided. And can I say, on a side note, 
we should thank God for the unity that we have within this church. I mean, a very diverse bunch of people who are here, but there's a great sense of unity among the people within this church. We should never take that for granted. Uh, One of the things that I love on Sunday is heading into morning tea in the hall. I mean, just about everybody here makes it over there to morning tea because they enjoy spending time with each other. We're, we're, We're a united group of people and united for the sake of the gospel. So what was the issue with these two women? What was it that had caused the division between them? Well, you can see it right there. Well, actually, no, you can't. It's quite amazing. Paul doesn't even mention what the issue is. See, that's not the point. He doesn't want them to dwell on what their differences are. He wants them to do one simple thing. He knows that their unity that they have in the gospel should trump whatever trivial differences they may have. And again, do you see the language there? Look at the next verse, verse 3. Yes, I ask you, loyal yoke fellow, he probably is using the man's name there, but he says, help these women who've contended at my side for the cause of the gospel along with Clement and the rest of the fellow workers whose names are written in the book of life. Help them to sort this difference out. Well, after making his plea, he says this in verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. If you're old enough, you might be able to remember the chorus. It was actually a round that used to get sung in churches. Can, can I have a little bit of a show of hands? Yeah. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say... It was like that, the wheels on the bus go round and round. It was really just an annoying chorus. And it was thought to have been based on these verses, but I'm not sure that it's actually helped us to understand these verses. We need to be clear about what Paul's saying here. He's not saying... Be happy. That's that's not what he means by rejoice in the Lord. And he's not saying smile and the world smiles with you. It's not one of those kind of comments. I mean, it follows on directly from what he's just said to you, Odia and Syntyche. Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in what you have in Jesus. Be excited by that. Don't be divided by other issues. Be thankful about what you have in the Lord. Some people think that rejoice in the Lord means that you have to be happy all the time. That's not what Paul is saying at all. When we focus on what we have in Jesus, when our hearts and minds are focused on the gospel, then we have a lot to be thankful for. Paul goes on to say the focus that we ought to have as Christians. Verse number five, let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. It can always be a bit frustrating getting advice from someone who's never been through what you're going through. And there seem to be plenty of people who are willing to dole out that advice. They've never had a tough day in their life. But when you're going through some really tough days, they want to say, what you should do is, and you just want to slap them. You want to say, you have no idea what's going on in my life. Don't tell me. You've never been through this. Paul's writing to a church where people are beginning to face a hard time for their faith in Jesus. Persecution in the Roman Empire is just beginning to get started. And the people in the church in Philippi, well, they faced the danger from the authorities in that area of having their property confiscated. 
possibly being thrown into prison. And Paul tells them not to be anxious. Well, if they didn't know Paul, they might want to take that advice with a grain of salt. But they did know Paul. And they knew what he'd been through. And they knew that he was in prison. And they knew that he was probably about to lose his life simply because of his faith in Jesus. The future, humanly speaking, looked rather bleak for Paul. If anyone had the right to be anxious, well, it's that guy sitting in the prison in Rome whose name's Paul. But here he is saying that he's not anxious and they shouldn't be anxious about what's happening in their lives either. Do you remember what he said in chapter 2? At at the prospect of facing life and death, he says, live, die, it's a coin toss, really. If I get to live, well, I get to serve Jesus further. If I die, I get to be with Jesus. And he says, I can't even pick which one I would choose if I had the choice. He knows that the Philippians need to keep their minds fixed on God. They need to have a heavenly perspective And he promises that God will guard their hearts and minds if they do that. What Paul says is right, that if you trust in God in all things, if you recognise that God is in control of all things, then you ought not to be anxious about things. It doesn't mean that life will always be easy or that you'll have a fun time all the time. That's not the case. But you don't need to be anxious. He's not saying trust God and everything will work out just like you hoped. That's not what he's saying either. He's saying trust God because God's got it all under control and you can trust him. And ultimately he has your best future in mind. I remember the one time when the truth of all of this really sunk in for me. It was when Lauren, our first, was born. I hadn't yet been exposed to the horror of childbirth, so that was, uh, that was interesting. And there were difficulties during the delivery and the staff were trying to kind of reassure us that everything was okay, but the labour went on for a very long time and the heart rate went up and finally they kind of grabbed the phone and made a phone call and four or five more people came rushing into the room and I was pushed to the back wall and told to stand back there so that I wasn't in the way. And as I stood there watching what was going on, the seriousness of it all really started to sink in. And I can remember as I stood there on the back wall thinking, wow, is the baby all right? Is Debbie all right? I mean, this could go pear-shaped very, very quickly here. But I also remember standing there and thinking to myself, do you honestly believe that God has got this under control? If you do, then you can trust him. Now, that didn't mean that everything would be fine. But I knew that no matter what happened, God did have it under control and that I could trust him. That was one of those really defining moments, I suppose, in my Christian life. And I knew what Paul was talking about when he says that the peace of God will guard your heart and mind. I had a complete confidence, not that everything would be great, but that God had it under control and that I could trust him no matter how this turned out. Don't be anxious about anything, pray about everything, Paul says. Bring it to God because he's the one who's got it all under control. And continuing on from that kind of right focus, he talks about right thinking there in verse number 8. If 
Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Fill your minds with the stuff that's going to shape your heart and mind in the right way. Everyone knows that. Our society knows that. There's been a Senate inquiry taking place over the last couple of weeks in Canberra because one of the big issues that we're facing today is that kids have access to the most incredible pornography simply by turning on their computer. And the Senate inquiry has been trying to figure out how we deal with that because it's messing up the minds of our children. It's a frightening thing. I mean, back in my day, I was thinking about this the other day. If I wanted to have access to pornography, I had to go to the newsagent and there was no way Mrs Hill was ever going to let me have anything that even looked suspicious. And it was hidden away behind the, 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 the shelves in the shop. Like it wasn't out on display and it was in uh, packaging that you couldn't see anything and you had to be 18 years old to get it. But not today. Children are able to fill their minds with all kinds of things that they really ought not to be seeing. But it's not just the kids that we need to worry about, is it? We need to make sure that we don't fill our hearts and our minds with those sorts of things that aren't admirable or that aren't praiseworthy, that aren't pure, that aren't lovely, that aren't admirable. We need to watch what we put into our hearts and in our minds. And then Paul finishes with this, and this I think is probably for me the most annoying verse in the whole of Philippians. He says, whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. Isn't that annoying that he could say that? Well, I think it is. Because I just don't think I could. I'd love to be able to say that, but but I'm not sure that I can. I mean, for most of us, it's the do what I say, not what I do, isn't it? But Paul says, whatever you've seen in me, put that into practice. In another place, he says it a little bit more clearly. He says, follow me as I follow Christ. He's setting himself up as that example for them. He's not boasting He's not claiming perfection. You've only got to read the rest of Paul's letters to know that he's not claiming perfection. But he is saying, I'm trying to live out what it means to follow Jesus, so follow my example. Unity for the sake of the gospel. If you had to come up with a sentence that sums up Philippians, I reckon that would be it. Unity for the sake of the gospel. But it isn't just the message for the Philippian church, is it? It's a message for every church, in every age, in every place. See, this is God's shop front right here. Here is how God is at work in this world, in this community here in Balmain. Here is where God is reaching out to this world with the good news about his son Jesus. And of course we should want to be united in that work. Of course we would want people to see our church and know that we are followers of Jesus because of the lives that we live, because of the example that we set, because of the love that we have for one another. 